The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Oh, we thank you for the chance to sing about something marvelous, the freedom that you have given us in Christ. You have indeed done that work that we could not do. You, you set us free. You set us free in Jesus, in his work on the cross. And now you have raised us up with him to walk in newness of life. And I pray that this morning, as we open up your word, that you would teach us something about that, that you would move us then towards that kind of life, a life with him, a life in pursuit of him and his ways, a life of godliness. Use your word this morning to shape us towards that end. In making that request, Lord, I want to end by saying thank you. Because what you've done, as we're going to see here, is what you've done is you've made that possible. So thank you. Now build your church, build us up to follow you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Christians often talk about how we are a blessed people, and we are. We are remarkably in front of a God who is so generous. We are a full people, blessed beyond measure, and we rightly enjoy all the kindnesses of God to us. It's true, we're blessed. But then also rightly, Christians sometimes talk about and remind ourselves of that we are blessed to be a blessing. Sometimes you hear that phrase, we're blessed to be a blessing. We personally enjoy God's many blessings, but he never intended that it just end there. These blessings come to us and are intended to reach past us as they they shape us and and move us on to be a blessing to others out in the world. we're blessed, and we're blessed to be a blessing. And in fact, some of that was touched on last week in 2 Peter chapter 1. So in verse 2, we have the knowledge of God, that is, we have come to know Christ, and in that we now have a life that is grace and peace multiplied. There's the blessing. As we considered that, we sought, we sought to see a little bit of how that affects us, how it modifies us, how it pushes out, us out to be a blessing in the world. We've talked about that. And now this morning, in verses 3 and 4, we move on a little bit past that. We're blessed. We're blessed to be a blessing. But also there's another purpose in what God's done in us and for us. We're blessed to live godly lives here on earth. Blessed to be godly, we could say. Blessed to be holy. Given great grace and precious gifts so that we will have what we need to say no to ungodliness, to say no to the world and all that's coming at us from the world and to say yes to and then walk with God. That's what we're going to see today in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And as we do that, I, I hope that what happens in us is some sort of a reshaping of, of one of the misunderstandings of grace. We must always be a people who always talk a lot, big, 
grand, we champion grace. Can't say that enough in enough different ways. But one of the misunderstandings of it sometimes is that we can sometimes feel like the muscle of action isn't really that important. And it gets atrophied. Grace, and therefore I, I think less about, I talk less about what I must do. In fact, what I hope kind of comes out of this this morning is understanding it properly that grace is so that I can do. These two things are not set opposite to one another as in sometimes this and sometimes that. They are together. We, grace, blessing, so that I can do, so that I can walk with God in holiness. Maybe we hear in this a bit of a correction this morning to, to misunderstanding, and maybe that will move you to exercise that muscle, if you will, that, the action of walking with God. That's what we're going to think about today. Let me read verses 3 and 4 and then draw two observations from them. This is from 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own or by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Two observations. Here's the first. In bringing us to know him, God gave us very great sufficient blessings. In bringing us to know him, God gave us very great sufficient blessings. These two verses are really one long sentence, a single sentence, that is very intricate. There's a lot here, there are a lot of phrases that are kind of linked to each other in series, and so it's a little difficult to trace it all through, but we're going to try to work through it in an orderly fashion so that we can catch it all. Verse 3 begins with God's divine power. It's in supernatural strength that only God has. It's, what it's alerting us to here is that something is, is on the table here that we cannot, did not do ourselves God did because it took divine power. He did something. He granted in power. He bestowed in a completed fashion. So the grammar here is about something that happened, not something he does, happened, granted. To us, to Christians, it says, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Life and godliness, I'm going to put on the table over here and come back to later, but what you look at now, what we see here is that all things, all pertaining things, all pertinent things, what's needed and relevant, he gave that to us through the knowledge of him who called us. Pause there for a second. If you were here last week, that may sound familiar. Back up in verse 2, we, we pointed out that 2 and 3 here are, are connected in a lot of ways, and this word knowledge is one of those ways. 
Last week I mentioned how the the word that's translated here, knowledge, in 2 and 3 is slightly different than the word that's translated knowledge on a 5 and 6. The words are close. They're close, but they're slightly different, especially in, in two competing contexts. The one that we're going to come to emphasizes a little more the kind of knowledge that you go out and get, learning. Whereas this emphasizes a little bit more an understanding that's already settled in, something you have. So we have arrived at something already, this knowledge of him who called us. That's the knowledge of God. We have come to know him personally. When you became a Christian, what God did was he brought you to know him personally, not just know things about him, truths about God, but to know God relationally, this God who called us. If you're a Christian, that's happened to you. He called you which is not the kind of calling that's sometimes called the universal call of God, where a speaker says something and it goes out universally. It's, it's broadcast often, repeatedly to everybody who, if you speak English, you can hear this call, come to Jesus and he will forgive you of your sin. That's the universal call of God. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something that's called the effectual call of God, something that effects the end result. It makes happen the end result. He makes happen in a human being something that the human voice can't. He makes it happen by his own. That's the best way to translate that. Your footnote probably has it. Maybe your translation puts it in the text. By his own glory and excellence. which is actually a compound virtue, his glorious excellence. Peter writes like this a lot. We're going to see this often. In fact, we're going to see it three times in our short passage today where he wants to express a compound idea and he uses two words or two phrases and you can kind of cram them together. You could hyphenate it or you could change one into an adjective if that works. You can kind of put this together. Glory excellence. Glorious excellence jammed together, a single idea. It is not about something that is in us, it's something that is in him, it's his own glory excellence. We weren't in ourselves good enough, we weren't in ourselves clever enough, no preacher with a human voice is actually very good at wooing people because none of us actually can touch the necessary heart. Some can make clear the truth is a little bit better than others, but nobody can touch the heart. Only God, by his glory excellence, can. His power, his grace, his mercy, his godness. And he used all of that to act on you, Christian. And when he acted on you, he brought you from death to life. He called you out of the darkness into the light. He called you from deafness, and he gave you suddenly ears that hear. Out of blindness, and he gave you eyes that see. And you heard him, and you came. Like Jesus described his sheep, I know them, they hear my voice, they come and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. That's the calling of God. He calls his people out from the world and they hear and come at different times in all kinds of different ways. We have no way of knowing who those are and when those are being called. 
not even for ourselves. The fact that a person doesn't hear that at age 15 means absolutely nothing about whether God will call them at age 25. So our job as people is to speak in English the call and trust that God will do the supernatural work that's necessary. He'll poke hearts and he'll open minds and he'll give you understanding. He'll say, here's the offer of forgiveness in Christ. I say that in English, but he says it by his spirit. And if you hear that, if you're hearing that even now and you say like, that's interesting, maybe he's calling you, respond. Take a step forward, come near, respond. That's how he calls people. A Christian, you're a Christian, you can look back and say, I was called by him, that's happened. I was introduced to him by him and I know him because of him. This is the kindness and the love of God for you. By his power, he did what you needed and he brought you to know him. And we could pause there and reflect on that and give thanks for it and praise God for it because that right there, that, that much is sweet in itself. But actually, he doesn't mean for us to stop there because he's got something else beyond that that is his actual focus. He did something else as an intentional byproduct or an intentional side effect when he brought you to know him, when he called you. We saw it already hinted at in verse 3. He gave us all these things we need through the knowledge of him. Through coming to know him, he gave us all things. So he doesn't just leave us saved, he leaves us equipped with all things. That's the focus for this morning. That's in verse 3. And then there's more of it in verse 4. It says, He called you by His own glory and excellence, His own glory excellence, by which things, the glory excellence, by His power, it says, He gave us His precious and very great. Again, cram that together. Precious and very great promises. His greatly precious promises given. We talk about promise, that noun can be either a statement about what somebody is going to do, like, I will send Messiah one day. That statement is the promise. I will send Messiah one day. Or on the other hand, the promise can be the thing the statement is about, as in, Jesus is the promise of God. See the difference there? So to give a promise could be either to give a statement or to give the thing you previously made a statement about. Could be either. And for the longest time, I've read this verse as if it was about statements. God saying, I give you this promise, these promises. I will do this and that and the other in the future. But that's not it. And I think this changes some things. 
It's about past statements now fulfilled. God saying not, when I brought you to know me, I gave you promises about what I will do, but when I brought you to know me, here, I'm now giving you what I promised a long time back, yours. Here, now you have it. That's what the word in the original language makes clear, but you can actually see that without knowing the original language. You can see that if you just kind of follow this sentence through and then think about where we are in the Bible. This whole sentence is about things that God granted, and both times that word is used, it's about accomplished, not will grant, granted, gave, and it's done. Something has been finished off, things, all the things we need that he gave us. That kind of follows from just the, the context of the sentence. And then where we are in the history of the Bible is that we are not in the time of forecasting promises. We are in the time of the promises filled. We're in the time of the end, the time of Messiah, when all the stuff in the past that was promised has now come to a head and been delivered to us. He's given us great, precious wonderfully valuable, beautiful things that he promised us in the past. The promises now are ours delivered. So let me try to like, draw this all together and kind of make it clear. One of the difficulties with this, with this passage and with this sermon, I, I kind of felt as I was writing this sermon that I hope I don't lose half the people with this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, because that's the structure of this thing, and it gets confusing. So let me try to, like, grab it together and, and clarify this. From eternity past, God made a plan. And then he slowly unfolded it over the centuries, step by step, issuing promises, that is, statements, all along the way, you've read the Old Testament, you're aware of this, all along the way he's issuing statements about what was coming one day, about what he would do, about what he would deliver to us, awesome things. None of them are listed here. They're all just kind of captured under this phrase of precious and very great promises. But all throughout, if you kind of like run your mind through the Old Testament, you can see all throughout what he's promising is an enemy defeated one day. He's promising forgiveness of your sins. I will restore your standing. I will reverse your shame. I will provide for your physical needs and I will, I will feed you and shelter you, putting you into a, a, in the midst of a people, a community, a, a family. I'll give you new hearts that value and feel and desire rightly. I'll give you new minds that understand truth accurately. I'll give you wisdom to sort out life and decisions and choices. I'll give you self-control and personal power to say no to temptation and yes to follow me. All of that, that's all kind of laced throughout the Old Testament. You can probably think of different passages here and there. But over all of them, the biggest kind of most repeated, grandest promises. I will bless you and I will be a shield to you. I will dwell with you in your midst and you will be my people and I will be your God. We will be like this together. 
That one encompasses all the other ones. God promised that over thousands of years, affirmed it repeatedly, and then Christ came and went to the cross and rose from the dead, and you were called to know him, and in that calling, by means of the knowledge of him, all of those promises, all of those things that he talked about in the past were dumped into your lap. A bucket load of grace on you. And God is now your Father. And you have his presence with you wherever you go by means of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And he has forgiven your sin and wiped it away. He has defeated your enemy. And you have a standing with him in forgiveness and honor and and a status as, as a child of God. You have a new mind that understands. You have a heart that loves him rightly and wants him truly. And you have power to say no to sin by the indwelling spirit again. You have a future inheritance of which you have some of it now, more to come. All of these very great and very precious promises. All given to you. You have them all. You have all that you need. You lack no good thing. You are blessed. You are equipped. You can do it. Do what? Right there, I I could preach that or some version of that, and right there, oftentimes, we are accustomed to fill in something, which is not wrong. We're accustomed to fill in something that is like, I can enjoy his goodness. I can give thanks. I can praise his holy name. Yes, yes, yes. At other times then, maybe less ideally, we fill in there, so I can have my best life now. I can enjoy this world that he's given me. You have what you need. All that he long promised he delivered to you so you can do it. Do what? That's the second observation. The blessings of God have been given to us now so that we can live godly lives now. The blessings of God have been given to us now so that we can live godly lives now. You see this in verse 3 and the part that I've so far skipped over. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Cram it together. Godly life. Put a hyphen there. Life of godliness. Life like God. That's what he gave us all things for. To live a godly life here, not just to enjoy ourselves, not even just to be blessings to other people exactly, but to be holy. 
verse 3, and it's expanded on in verse 4. He granted us his awesome promised blessings, all the things promised, so that, the verse says, there's purpose right there, so that through these promised blessings, two opposite things. You could become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the worldly nature. A pair. We all start out by nature in the world and of the world. So we are by nature. And there's a lot of ways we could describe what the fallen world is, but Peter uses the word corruption. The corruption that is in the world. Poisoned, decaying, corroded, falling apart. We live in a world that is so often slathering a fresh coat of paint on rotting wood and it looks nice until you poke at it and it cracks or, or falls apart or the, the, the yuck under it kind of oozes out. It, it's there. Sin and evil is really real and really in the world not just in some war in Europe or in some crime on a street in a town somewhere, but in us, in individual human beings. People speak words of sometimes vicious nature and, and deceive one another and, and attack and then proudly defend in ways that are at other people's expenses and we ignore people in their needs and we live by impulse and feeling, doing whatever seems right in our own eyes. I was tempted to do this but decided not to waste our time because we can all understand this. I was tempted to just buy a newspaper and highlight the stuff that was about the corruption of the world and hold it up and show it to you and it would have been yellow. That's the world. Broken and fallen and at different times covered up with nice clothes and flashy lights and a bunch of chrome, a good coat of fresh paint. But the world is corrupt, falling apart because of what it does with desire. twists it. When verse 4 says the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, it's actually added in the word sinful, just to help us understand to clarify something. Not all desire is wrong. There is desire and there is sinful desire. But desire itself is kind of a part of the natural human condition. And it's actually useful. It's what, what moves us to live. But what happens when our fallen hearts grab a hold of desire or want or love? What, what happens is we take it somewhere. We enhance it or suppress it or we twist it or we put it in the wrong place or in the wrong time. A desire for money is good. It sends you out the door to work often. But what happens with that when it meets our fallen hearts is that it becomes greed and leads to crime and, and we end up finding our identities in it and, and looking for our security and the things that we can buy and purchase and own. 
The desire for intimacy and even sex is appropriate and right within the covenant of marriage. But what happens to it is that it's a really strong and powerful feeling, and so we attempt to justify it and enact it in every possible realm because it feels good, and it's a strong draw on us. And so we, we act out and we, we live lustfully. We pursue it all the time, and on and on and on and on and on, and the world is destroyed. Now, there's, one could say those things and say, like, yeah, that's not what I'm trying to do. We shouldn't do that. What we should say is, oh, man, with some tears in your eyes. Because that's tragic and awful, and there's no other way around it. Given what we are, what you and I were. We're stuck just as we are. We are people fallen, given desires that are right, but then we mar them and twist them. And what we do is we, we make ourselves subhuman and destroy the world and ourselves. And we can't get out of it. So it's more than just wrong, the corruptions in the world. It's more than just wrong, the twisting of desires. It is awful and painful, and we're powerless to change it. It's what's lying behind all the tears and all the emptiness and all of the futility of the world. And it's wrong too, but it's also incredibly heartbreaking. That's where we all start. Stuck in the world and its corruption because our desires are all messed up. And the God who is holy says, no. In two ways. No in the judgment sense. And also, no in the, I'm not going to let that stand, sense. He made the world to display his glory and goodness. He made the world, it's his. He made it to display his righteousness and his justice and the purity of his nature. And all the world fallen in sin is doing everything it can to erase him. And he says no in the judgment sense and no in the, I'm not going to let that stand, and so he promised to fix it. Not just judge it, fix it. He promised long time past to one day make a people who would again walk with him in newness of life, who would walk in holiness and righteousness, who would accurately reflect what he is like here in his world, who would image him, who would mirror God, who would live out God's nature on two legs here. And he showed us what that was and called us to it, and we couldn't. And so he sent one person to walk on two legs and to carry God's image into the world. And he subjected his son to the corruption of the world, made him victim to it, in fact, to set you free. You have been, it says, 
set free, you have escaped from the corruptions in the world. He broke you free. He broke the bonds off of you and called you out of that, called you into something else then, that you would partake of his image, that you would bear it here to live a life that pleases God, not just in your, your, con- your position before him, but in your daily condition as you walk, that you would walk in a way that's pleasing to him, that's worthy of this calling that he's given you. That's possible for you now. That's what he called you to. Here's where the danger of misunderstood grace comes in. That sometimes at this point right here, somebody hears me say, Something that sounds like walking out in holiness, walking out a godly life is like really good bonus points. But I've already passed. He, he did that. He set me free from this bondage and he made me new. He brought me into the knowledge of God and I'm actually forgiven and all those, all those promises have been delivered to me. So, so awesome. I know I shouldn't treat her like that, and I know I shouldn't, I shouldn't love the, those money things, and I know I shouldn't be pursuing this. Uh, that'd be great if I didn't. But thankfully. That's misunderstood grace. The grace that saves is the grace that changes. When he called you and he gave you this grace, he dumped all those promises into your lap, What he did was he said, I forgive you, you are mine, and I'm giving you all things necessary to walk in godliness. Come walk with me. If you're a Christian, that resonates with you. If you're a Christian, that resonates with you. Maybe what you then say is, okay, help that's what the promises are for. That's what the good things given to you are for. They're, they're meant to be help to you. They're help. He's given you help. Help in, in a couple different ways. These things sometimes help. Help you walk in godliness a bit like muscles and a shovel help a person dig a hole. If you call an infant or a toddler, here, d- dig a hole, they'll say like, I, I understand that sort of, but... I can't. You call me to do something that's impossible. Well, put some muscles on that person and give him a shovel. Some of God's delivered promises, some of the good things he gives you, some of his blessings are enabling in that sense. They are helped you in that sense. You have abilities that you did not have before, so take your thoughts captive and submit them to Christ. Your thoughts don't run you. You run your thoughts. Your feelings don't run you. You run your feelings now. You have capabilities that are different. The Spirit of God lives in you. He's given you help. Exercise that. Pick up the shovel with your muscles and dig. Some of his helps are of that nature. But others of his helps... He calls you to walk in godliness. He calls you to remain faithful to him and to walk after him. And some of those helps are of the sort that a phone call or FaceTime is for distanced lovers. 
the, the connection there helps you remain faithful. Helps you remain emotionally and relationally together though you are apart. So evidences of his love to you, evidences of his defense of you, evidences of his provision for you, the body of Christ around you, some, some vision of, of this community now, but what heaven will be one day. All, all of these things are, are not exactly physically empowering, they are more faith empowering. If you'll hope. So if, if you are to take your thoughts captive because you can, then maybe the other part of this is set your mind on things above. Where Christ is, where your life is, from where he's coming for you. So one way or the other, he has given you help. He's given you an ability or he's given you reason and fuel. He calls you, not just to rest in your forgiveness, but to walk in holiness, to walk in godliness with him. And he says, and I'll give you help. I'll give you ability, a new mind, a new heart, and my spirit living in you. And I'll give you every reason to trust me and follow me. Evidence of my grace in the past, proving my grace will be there with you in the future. Through those two helps, he's given you all the things that you need. So walk after him, Christian. You can. Do so. This is what you need, and you have it. Which is not to say, carefully, and I hope briefly here, which is not to say that you don't also, you've given, he's given you this help here, help that is kind of like a shovel and muscles, help that is kind of like a FaceTime connection to him, but that's not to say that you don't also maybe need some sleep or some food or some medication or a vacation. Why do I say all that? Because I've heard this verse taught a bunch of times. A bunch of times. And I always thought it was about statements. I already talked about that. But I've also heard it taught a bunch of times, wrongly, as if God, by his power, has given you all things you need for this godly life, and you don't need anything else that you find anywhere else. And I want to say that's not true. Nothing here aims to discount the natural world and the natural order that we live in. We are embodied souls. We cannot ignore the body and pretend, for instance, that I have no need of food or sleep and then I can expect to walk with God just fine all the same. I'll trust the Spirit of God, I'll read my Bible, and I won't eat, I won't sleep, I won't take care of this, and everything will be just great. No, it won't. You're an embodied soul. We must address our physical needs as well. But no amount of sleep or food or medication or vacation, no balanced diet is going to make you godly. It only make it physically possible for you to 
to function. And then you're left with yourself. And what do you have then? If you're not a Christian, nothing. Nothing but a desire, perhaps, that at different times recognizes the corruption in the world and you'd love to get rid of it, but you can't. But you, Christian, when you're left with yourself, what do you have? Everything you need. All things necessary delivered to your lap. Some of it giving you different powers, the Spirit of God in particular within you. Some of it giving you a different connection with God and reason to hope in Him. But Christian, by God's power and glory, you know Him, and so you have all the promises kept sufficient to empower you to walk with Him, to live a godly life like He's called you to. So do so in faith and in hope leaning on God. Let me pray. Father, would you help us, your people, help us to rightly understand the place of your blessings in our life. And would you, with that, then drive us, move us towards walking with you. Some of us maybe need to, to exercise some muscle, so to speak, and make choices that are different. And others of us need deeper and stronger, vibrant connection with you to fuel our hope. Either way, Lord, touch your people now and give us help. We are yours, saved by you. Saved then to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling you've given us, so help us to do so. And we say thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.